I'm a composer. I, I play piano. And recently I've been also playing um, all the instruments of the string quartet in a bunch of unusual ways using non-traditional techniques. I make mostly different types of experimental or new classical music. I'm interested in ways of making a very complex result with a sort of simpler sort of setup in the initial stages. So you, there's not necessarily very complicated instructions that performers are following, but the sonic result will be very complicated. And I'm interested in complexity in rhythm, I guess, above other attributes. So um, I really like rhythms, which, you know, would be very difficult to fit in a traditional meter, like where you, you have uh, small accelerations and decelerations that don't follow people's natural sense of vibrato. Um, and you have, you know, groupings of notes whose proportions are not in rational proportions, if that makes sense. So instead of having a, a regular meter where everything's in a binary proportion or in, you know, triple proportions or quintuple proportions, you have these partial proportions that are difficult to parse. You know, it's between like a, a triplet and a septuplet. Maybe it accelerates between those and it goes to some other you know, rhythm, which is between different tuplet values. That's a, a pretty bad description of who I am, but. Uh, that makes total sense. And I think that comes across like in what I've seen of your uh, music and like scores and that sort of thing, you know, especially the, uh, that piece where you're kind of rubbing the two, you know, the cello and the other, the violin on each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is a uh, Tony Hawk spinning forever in his own personal ontological purgatory. <laughs> took me to remember the full title because I, I i i changed it quite a lot that's a pretty cool title i like it <laughs> yeah, yeah it's i think that title is one of the most successful parts of the piece because people like to see tony hawk's name and they're like oh spinning i can see he's spinning the instrument so even if they don't know what the word ontological means which most people don't because it's not a very frequently used word, especially spoken out loud. Mm -hmm. um, they're okay with it. My, my composition teacher, Michael, he had such issue with that title. He talked to me about the title for the entire composition lesson <laughs> and didn't have anything to say about the composition. Really? Yeah. What was his problem with it? At first he was like, oh, this title is totally meaningless. How could you have a personal <laughs> ontology? The whole, the whole point of ontology is that it's universal. <laughs> And then I, I like explained, well, you know, like a lot of people have personal ontologies just that, you know, despite it supposedly being universal, right. people are forming their own personal philosophies all the time, including there are philosophies of what is in the world, which is what ontology is. Ontology is the study of what is, what exists. Um, it's sort of related to epistemology, which is the study of how you come to know something and what's a valid way of knowing something. I know this is, this is kind of abstract, but anyways, he, so he thought it was meaningless because how could what, it, what is be personal? But many times it is personal, I think, especially in with postmodernism, it encourages personal ontologies instead of like central authorities giving people a philosophy that they have to follow. Um, so he got it eventually. And then he, he was like, oh yeah, you should have just made, you needed to change the grammar around to and it, he said that it should be 
Tony Hawk spinning forever in the purgatory of his own personal ontology. That, I don't like that as much, though. <laughs> I, I, I don't either. I put it in the score at the bottom. The title might be a little bit clearer if you phrase it this way, but I didn't change the title. There's a disclaimer for the title. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to look like I'm completely bullshitting. Yeah. I mean, I am a, a little bit, just like anybody is, but... So that's the title. Yeah, that's, that's funny. That It kind of reminds me, like, I wrote a piece one time, and I titled it Dying Star, you know, and then I kind of, I made, like, a little program note about it, like, oh, how it's kind of inspired, loosely inspired by, like, the visuals of, like, you know, an imagination imagining like a dying star or whatever i think it was like in a lesson or something may not have been a lesson it was some one of those like juries or whatever where you kind of look at your work and like talk about it and the guy was like you know like what's what's the meaning of this title like what dying star you know he had a problem with the program note too like i was telling him you know it's kind of inspired by it and it's like oh well, what moments are the dying star why why you know this isn't correct you know it doesn't do this and it's like okay at a certain point like fuck you <laughs> i'll call it whatever i want <laughs> and like this isn't you know an academic paper about cosmology it's a it's a, <laughs> a piece of music like <laughs> yeah, yeah the title is just supposed to be evocative to give people yeah. something to latch on to right it's just too literal <laughs> for the <laughs> <laughs> that too that too the title's not interesting if it literally describes the piece yeah. where's it's, tony it's... hawk at he's not in there <laughs> He mentioned that too, something along those lines. It's like oh, Tony wow. Hawk is a proxy for like anyone, you know? And also it's like, look at the mechanism. It's kind of like skateboarding, but not exactly. That's why it's interesting is it's yeah. not literal. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. This is why people end up titling all their pieces like composition number four. I know. And, that, yeah. and that's another way of not having any audience because they're like, why do I care about composition number four? <laughs> you, right. You've given me nothing to care about unless, you know, they're a composer. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or you're Anthony Braxton. Then you could title all your pieces like that. In a way, it's kind of like, you know, it feels like kind of oppressive to have to title something like, oh, everyone's going to judge my piece based on like this title that I create for it. So like, oh, I could, well, a way to get around that is to, to do, you know, we said, you know, composition for, or, you know, whatever. Um, but that's, to me, is just like kind of lame. And <laughs> I don't know. I'm it's not, a missed opportunity. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with it, I suppose. But for me personally, it's just more fun to like come up with creative titles. It's more interesting for an audience too, I think, like you were saying. Did you come up with the title first or like was that afterwards or way after like yeah. like a year after i i started working on it okay do you have yeah, some all these of... pieces were sort of written i mean directly on the instruments but then also with my friend za stanger when i brought him the the ideas you know and like we sort of i in explaining it to him you know the piece became more structured you know whereas originally maybe it was just like oh, how can I, what can I do with these two instruments? <laughs> that is weird. And it's yeah. like not really a piece. Yeah, it doesn't have a form or any like more specific elements, but it still didn't. We just called it 360s for a long time, which is, I guess, how I thought of Tony Hawk because Tony Hawk, of course, is famous for the 900. What's, what's your process for like naming things? Is it kind of just like 
when it comes about or do you do that typically first or is it kind of just different every time? It is a little different every time, but I, there's this, a process. I mean, so usually there'll be a working title if I'm working with somebody else and I need to refer to the piece, which will just refer to some salient musical aspect that we can both remember. So that one was 360s because mm-hmm. we're spinning it yeah. around. And then often the title will be based on the working title. And I like titles to be not obvious. And I like them to be supplemental to the musical information. So I, I wanted to add something to the audience experience beyond if they just heard the piece, if I'm going to give it a title. Otherwise, I would just call it sonata or composition, whatever. I've tried a lot of different actually. That, that is at least what my guiding sort of idea was for the, this title. I've tried other types of titles, like this isn't really about my process of how I name them, but sort mm-hmm. of just the ideas behind why I choose certain titles. Hopefully that's okay. I can get into the process if, if you'd like after I explain this. Um, oh, go ahead. Either is fine. So I have another string quartet called Surface. And that one, I was trying to be very literal and very, you know, like simple. Like, Yeah. Um, but the problem is the Microsoft Surface, just ruin, ruining that title. <laughs> so I think that was a pretty bad title and it really let the piece down. But I've been calling it that for a while and I like released it on a USB drive with that title. So I, I feel like I can't change it even though I don't like that title. But often the titles will go through, I'll constantly like massage it into shape for at least a more complicated title like Tony Hawk spinning forever in his own personal ontological purgatory. Like forever was eternally also. Ontological wasn't always there and purgatory was like hell at some point. But I don't think that was as interesting because it's not a hell. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to say this is unpleasant. If this makes sense. So like, yeah. I don't, I don't like have like a specific intent, but I'm like, trying out all these different possibilities and i'll like actually rename so the score for the tony hawk piece is a website that i I don't know if you saw it i shared it with the forum one thing i'm working on is these multimedia scores which are websites so that you can have uh non-linear passages through the progression of the piece and you can incorporate movies and gifs and images and hyperlinks to other people's like writing so i've in that score, there's a, a couple links to philosophy writings that I thought were interesting, basically, and were only tangentially related to the piece, just to give anyone who might want to perform it more things to chew on, because I think it's it's good to have more information as a general principle. Not always. Sometimes it's just overwhelming and pointless. But a lot of performers really appreciate a lot of information. So I try to, I actually try to incorporate both aspects. I try to have a very simple version of the piece if they're not looking for a lot of information. It's just like two sentences or something. It's as simple as I can make it, make the sentences as short as possible. And just as to the point, just like an overall description. And then I will have like a, a more detailed version with as much information as I think could be helpful to guiding a performer to doing sort of what I want them to do. So I thought, you know, what if we have like sort of supplemental documents like other people's pieces of music or philosophy that we can link to and be like, look at all this other stuff and like use this to help uh, generate your conception of what you want the piece to be. Anyways, so I went on quite a long tangent there. So the the score's a website. I had the title up the top and I changed it like a lot of times. There's probably like 20 to 30 different iterations of the title of that piece at the top of that score before I settled on this one. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. The idea of, you know, um, having more aspects of like visuals and like videos to go along with, with a, a score because sometimes, you know, things are very easy to just like show someone but can take like uh, a long time to say out in like text or something. Especially for like the, the kind of things you're doing, you know, it can get right away, you know, you're placing it here and spinning it, but to describe that and kind of the sound that you want for it would, I can imagine, would take up a lot of text. Um, I started writing it out in all detail and it was just absurdly long and it was never detailed enough that I was satisfied. And it was just incomprehensible. Like these, cause like I'm doing like four things at once. You can see it in the video cause it comes out in one action, like mm -hmm. sliding up, you know, from the bridge, you know, towards the nut, rotating it five degrees, you know, and like, like talking about the changes of speed. It's like an uneven acceleration over the course of the piece. And it's very easy, as you said, to see somebody do that. So I, yeah. I actually took that out though. Cause I just, I have it. If someone, I have, I say in the score, you can email me if you want me to tell you in words what I'm doing at any point in any of these videos. But I, I took it out of the score cause it was just like, I think it's meaningless. I don't know. Maybe some people that is a helpful way to learn something, but I can't imagine just like sifting through. I mean, Lachen, do you know Helmut Lachenmann? Uh, no. So his scores have like a legend at the beginning with like a hundred symbols. Cause he, his music is kind of like that, <laughs> that piece where it's all like extended techniques and he's like inventing all of the techniques. But then he, the way he does the scores is it's, he was writing in the seventies. So he, d he couldn't do like a multimedia score. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So he has the key at the beginning, which is like 50 pages long with like hundreds of symbols. And then uh, he has all the symbols arranged in a completely traditional staff notation for the score. <laughs> and you have to like learn all these symbols and it makes the music so hard to play, which people actually love about his music. And that is really exciting to see someone play Lachman piece well, because it's really clear how much work they put into it and how virtuosic it is. Um, if you've looked at the scores. Yeah, that sounds interesting. It, it, um, it sounds like horrendous as a performer to have to deal with that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, however much I love to listen to his music, I would not want to perform most of his pieces. He's very considerate. You know, he doesn't, it's, there's nothing that's not necessary. In it. Mm. it sounds like there'd be a ton of unnecessary extra complexity, but it's, it's as straight ahead as he can make it. And anytime he could use a traditional notation, he does. And all of his uh, new notations are based on traditional notation in a very logical way, but it's still really <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Kind of makes me think of like, uh, you know, new complexity composers too, just like the super dense looking scores, you know, and it's, I think there's an aesthetic to that too. It's like, you know, they didn't need to use, you know, 64th notes there. They just wanted to. <laughs> uh, um, do you know uh, The Coyer's Tragedy by uh, Klaus Stefan Makoff? Uh, no, doesn't ring a bell. This is a solo cello piece with like 12 staves. I'll put it, a link to the YouTube video. I think this, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. <laughs> I mean, you've seen these kinds of scores. People love to look at them though. 
including people that hate to listen to this music. <laughs> You'll see new complexity stores, scores creeping like bits of them around in graphic design all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Like people just taking these scores because they love to look at them and they like how like, they like the idea of complexity, <laughs> even if not the actual result of complexity. Which I, I like some of that, that music, I think is... Oh, me too. Um, but there's definitely an aesthetic to the look of it, I think. Um, I don't know. Again, I think I have mixed feelings about, you know, as a performer, it can be like, why all this extra work you're giving me to transcribe all this hieroglyphs and... <laughs> they usually have a lot of very good justifications, but somehow <laughs> when you're performing it, uh, especially on a deadline... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah when uh yeah in reality you know with like time constraints and everything else how much time people have to practice and work on it and then like the concert date come up and who's going to really know the difference if they're improvising or actually playing the piece <laughs> i think it's pretty clear actually but not to that many people maybe yeah well it's it's, it's hard to improvise sounds like for anyhow I mean, it's not that hard. You won't get the pitch relationships that are in his scores, which yeah. you have to play the scores really accurately to get, but they're there. He even writes in one of his scores, there's like a moment of where he says to improvise in a style in the way. Um, I can't think of the, the piece. Well, I, like, right I don't know that score, I don't think. But he, there's, uh, there's everything at some point in yeah. one of his scores. Yeah, I... Uh analyzed like the first few measures of one of his like his guitar solo piece i forget the name of it but um yeah you know the whole grid thing where you map out like what is you know 12 against um 10 or like 198 against you know 35 or whatever it was <laughs> um and it's like how realistically could i actually do these rhythms you know because they're really kind of it's almost like they're different tempo changes, like every note almost. Um, yeah, that's the result. Definitely. Yeah. And there's a, the, he, there are rhythms in Ferdinand House pieces and other people's pieces where there is no perceptible difference between two different notated rhythms. But it sort of, it doesn't matter in his compositional process. It was all generated, you know, by yeah. layers of algorithms. So have you met Fernie Howe? No. Yeah, he used to live in California. He gave a talk at UC Santa Barbara in my undergraduate. And um, he like sung a portion of his piece, one of his pieces as part of it. But he, he, he didn't really care about accuracy when he sang it. <laughs> like, I wonder if he cared if, like he obviously wasn't trying. He was just in the middle of a talk and he just <laughs> wanted us to point us to us to a specific moment on a score, like a multiple staff score that he was showing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I've heard from other people that he could all he could perform all of his rhythms with 100% accuracy, but I somehow oh, that's that. total bullshit. I don't believe that yeah. for a second. <laughs> <laughs> the the person who said that said a lot of bull, other bullshit too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. No, he's he's a human just like everyone else. There's no like godlike composer figure that's like can perform all this things with complete accuracy like <laughs> I don't know. yeah i i agree with you <laughs> um, and it, i it doesn't really change my estimation of his music whether he could perform them at all yeah yeah i agree um 
I think usually most good composers also can be at least adequate performers. Um, I don't know that any like necessarily. I'm sure they must exist. I don't know. I don't think Berlioz was a performer at all. Berlioz played guitar. Yeah, but I don't know that he. But performed. was he bad at it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. There's plenty of composers who are not well known for their ability to perform, but I think most of them do. Yeah. You don't it's necessarily... interesting having having these composition departments where people don't have to perform at all, which is yeah. a, a lot of them. I go back and forth whether I think it's a good thing for a university or a music school to make it so make force everybody to do some performance. Well, I think it's definitely necessary to develop your skills like musical and have a musical sense because even composers that good composers that aren't necessarily performers they at least have a good musical sense which you can certainly develop through performance i think i don't know about requiring it or making it mandatory either though i mean i'm not in any position to design yeah I, that sort of thing the but. problem with i mean i making stuff mandatory it's always risky you're excluding somebody that should be in a program and be benefiting from an education and that's always unfortunate when that happens but as you're saying you have to if you don't engage with performing the music it's it's easy to miss really important parts about music if you're just thinking about it in only an abstract way yeah which doesn't happen too often because most people actually perform but it does happen i think i think i've seen it before for people who don't perform but who compose and who can't perform, who are extremely bad at performing any, any instrument. They also do a worse job writing for instruments for other people to perform because they yeah. never put themselves in those sho that shoes. So Definitely. I guess a lot of those people write electronic, electroacoustic music. Connell and Nancaro started writing a lot of stuff for player piano because of, um, you know, real humans can't perform that sort of music. Um, <laughs> uh, and I mean, his, his music is amazing. So I think there's definitely space for reaching beyond human capabilities. And, you know, the thing is now people have done a pretty good job of performing some of his really complicated rhythmic stuff. Obviously, it's not 100% accurate, but they definitely get the idea of the piece across. Yeah, he had that one piece with a, it's like a, I don't know if it's a canon or not, but there's uh, two voices and two tempos. One, and then one decelerates and one accelerates. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a performance for two pianos of people playing that. Uh, that was pretty cool. All right, but it was, it was probably slowed down though, right? Wasn't? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a little, a little bit slower. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I could find it. I think it was Thomas Addis. Do you know Thomas Addis? Yeah, he performed it, or? I don't know. I'm gonna have to look this up to make sure I'm not uh just lying. He did so, some several versions as duets. Hmm. With a, with another piano pianists, how familiar are you with his music? Thomas Edis. Yeah, I've listened to a couple pieces of his. Um, not yeah. super familiar. With... Fair enough. I know he he kind of he messes with the idea of like irrational time signatures and. Yeah, he has a, a fair amount. It's not like funny high levels or anything. Yeah. He has a. a a pretty complex rhythmic uh, palette. Is that a, such a thing, a rhythmic palette? Yeah. 
but it's generally more in the range of uh, what people are, are can actually perform and f- and feel confident that they're performing the rhythm that's on the page. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, the rational time signatures, I don't know that they're, they're certainly accomplished what, you know, an, uh, a notational thing, you know, I don't know that they're necessary um, or there might be different ways to notate that. I mean, you could say that with anything, but um, you know, I've, I've come across this. So I was like, I don't know if this is the best way to notate this. Yeah. Sort of the same thing you're saying. So I'm in this, I'm auditing writing for strings with Erica. Mm-hmm. And I just did the a duo for cello and double bass. And I was, it has like a metric modulation where like the triplets become the eighth note basically. Mm-hmm. And I tried to make it like real big, but they just, uh, they were like sight reading it. But it was right. like one of those things where they're like, in sight reading it, they skipped over that, which has, you know, it's a, a difficult piece. I should have written a, a more appropriate piece for them to sight read. And that's entirely on me. And they did an amazing job. But I wonder if I put that as an irrational time signature instead of a metric modulation, if they would have skipped over it. I think it would depend. I think they probably would. <laughs> um, but it would depend if how familiar they were with that, you know, if, they, if they've seen it before and... I don't think yeah. anyone regularly practices like sight reading that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is something you have to learn. Yeah, especially like things sight reading, like those sort of things you have to, to prepare for. But I know. Yeah, that's like, definitely true. But I think in composers, we can anticipate these like super low rehearsal situations, like people sight reading. Mm-hmm. And like I try as much as possible. It's not possible because the things I like to have in my music to make my music as sight readable as possible. I think that should be a goal in the back of my mind when I write music. I don't know. So whatever, whatever notation helps people get it and prioritize the different parameters as close to how I would like them to be prioritized. So there I like, I didn't care if they played the notes out of tune as much as I wanted them to get the metric modulation. And, you know, I wonder if I could shift things around in the notation. Like, for instance, using irrational time signatures may have done a better job prioritizing those different parameters. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I understand. It it could be. Um, And I know Eric, I took that same course, and Erica can be, I think she's overly optimistic about what they can accomplish. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. For the, the duo for violin and cello with Andrew. Mm-hmm. They just did such a perfect job on that piece that I gave them, which also had metric modulations yeah. and other difficulties. But that one was, it was very slow. So that helped. Mm-hmm. It's easier, obviously, to sight read something that's really slow. Well, they're very good players. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't know <laughs> who... Oh, the bass player they got is also really good. Yeah. But um, again, the, the tempo really makes a big difference. And also, there's a lot of other difficult things in this thing for bass. There's a lot of double stops. And mm-hmm. double stops are just a hard technique on double bass no matter what. Um, yeah. You're throwing all these other difficult things in there too. It makes it uh, even more difficult. You were saying that you thought maybe she was overly optimistic when you took the class? Well, I mean, I had a string quartet piece that 
it's pretty um it's a difficult piece it's not easy but and i was like i showed it to her i was like when i was thinking about it i was like i'm probably not going to have them do this because it's going to be a waste of a recording session I'll, have, I'll just write something easy and um you know i i brought but i showed it to her you know to like you know hey how's my string writing for this um and she's like oh you know like oh they they could do this you know we could definitely do this this is this looks fine it all looks it all looks good and it was also that that was um when the lockdown and stuff started happening so it was like transitioning for i started taking the class in person and then it became like online it ended up being like they're gonna have more time with it and they'll be able to have more time to practice it and they're each going to record it um and then it'll sync up afterwards so it's all going to be recorded to a click so i was thinking all right well maybe i'll just i already have it written it would be cool to have you know a recording of it um but yeah it didn't turn out very very well um yeah i I don't know playing string quartet music to a click track (laughs) obviously it can it's like hypothetically it's possible to make something good that way yeah but the tradition is just not to a click track that's just not how the ensemble plays yeah and the um it was mostly the rhythm that was that was uh out of place and you know other things too like they're playing you know arco when i marked pizzicato and um oh. <laughs> yeah was it like changing quite a lot or not really. There was a few changes. I mean, <laughs> not enough to where I'd be like, "Oh well, okay." And they missed that. I mean, know? that happens. It's just not yeah. as not as much time as Erica expected. People right. are busy, even with yeah. COVID nineteen lockdown. People are busy. I know, and that's why I originally wasn't gonna do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but um, yeah, <clears throat> I think that's part of the reason why, like Bernie Howe and other composers, write you know you know, so complex is to kind of like make the barrier of entry higher. So you don't get anyone to perform it unless they're like taking it very seriously. You know, um, someone can't just That's casually a, perform. I mean, you could, but they don't do, people don't do it as yeah. often. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's part of the intention behind it, but it's certainly a, a good result for those composers, you know, that people playing their pieces are spending time practicing it. And, yeah, um, taking it, it very seriously and dedicating themselves to it, which just that in its itself is a a good performative result. Yeah, I don't know. For me, I feel like I don't know that I could make that high of a demand of anyone. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think. Yeah, we're not we're famous. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's hard. It's hard. I think just being a random composer. You know, like you, can you imagine just like a score like that almost all the situations that other people are playing my music are a low rehearsal situation Mm -hmm. just because people are busy and that makes sense so it's just so it just would not work in that context yeah i mean maybe for like certain people that's looking for that kind of thing and they're like along the same lines of what we talked about before how like within more niche genres there's uh, more loyalty to the the genre rather so like 
people that are specialized in something are more dedicated to it because it's so niche or whatever. Um, which is the thing. It just means like there's less people doing that and it's would make things even harder potentially or. Uh, yeah. I mean, but it becomes, it's good that there's, I mean, that there are people dedicated to niche things um, for those niche things um, because they become strong advocates for it. And they get other people to be dedicated to it to lesser degree than they are. Yeah. So I'm kind of, I, I came across one of your pieces. I forget if it was like you shared it in the forum thing or what, but um, so it was a thing where you basically like asked people to tell you to do stuff. <laughs> so I've done, um, there's, they've done two pieces like this. Do you remember yeah. any more details? Not, not a whole lot, but it just seemed kind of, I don't know, almost like a strange, like, experiment. was it like a, was it like a Craigslist posting? Yeah. yeah. Or is it like a really long document with a lot of seemingly random stuff written in it? So I mean, they're both pretty long, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Why, why don't the Craigslist, you... Is the Craigslist one? I think so. Yeah. So this was a performance art piece I did in 2012 called Anything for Anyone. And it was a series of Craigslist posts where I offered to do any action for any person for free as best as i could yeah so <laughs> i don't know can you talk about like what what happened with that or like what and also like what kind of prompted that just because it seems well this is kind of a sequel to another piece that i did yeah. earlier in that year and the other piece was called a year-long performance piece despite it being called a year-long performance piece and the only thing that I gave to the piece in terms of structure was saying that it would last a year long. I ended up only performing it for three months and I can tell you why once I explain what the structure of the piece was. So that piece had the most open structure that I could imagine for any piece of art. It's not even really art at this point because it's so open. So basically the structure was that anyone could perform it. Anyone could direct what performers do in it and the directions could contain anything. And most of them were trans, most of the directions were transmitted via this one Google doc, which was like laid out like a calendar with every day of the year and every hour of every day in it. And you could like fill in this schedule with any directions that you want to fill it in, fill it, fill in. And I, I was a dedicated performer of this piece that was like the whole thing that I'd set up. I was, I'm going to perform this piece. I'm going to do as much of it as I possibly can. And other people performed it. It wasn't actually just me, which really surprised me that anyone else would want to do something like that. Um, no one else was as dedicated to it as me. No one tried to perform everything like I did. Um, but a, a couple of people, especially after I stopped performing, near the end of the year, somebody went in and tried to do everything for the last few days of the year, which was a great way to end the year. But I stopped performing because on uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, somebody wrote in end the performance as a direction in the performance. <laughs> so I was trying to perform everything as accurately <laughs> as I could. And as soon as I read that, I had to end the performance right then and there. As soon as I read it, there was no chance for someone to change that direction. Well, that was another thing. Anyone could change any of the directions mm. at, any, at any point, um, too. So, so the, this thing that you saw, Anything for Anyone, was a sequel to that. And as you can see, it's, it's more or less the same idea. 
but the format is sort of completely different instead of being this Google doc and like structured, like, Oh, here's this performance with instructions in the performance. It's like, here's a Craigslist post. And I'm like, I'll do anything for you and you don't have to pay me. <laughs> so what happened with, with the first one? Like who participated in that? And like, what kind of things were you actually doing? I mean, it was quite hectic. Um, you could look, unfortunately. So I had one of the good things that someone told me to do very early on was to make a YouTube channel and record a video of everything that I was doing for the piece. So I had uh, almost a thousand videos on there, but, but oh. you know, so I was really, I, it was cool. I was doing a lot of different performance pieces at the same time, but another performance piece that I was doing at the same time was I was performing the, I was posting the passwords and logins to every account that I had, like my email, my Facebook and my YouTube what? channel, everything. I was constantly spamming the login information for those accounts from those accounts so that anyone could come in and use them okay so that it would never be clear that i was using those accounts uh so later that person who actually finished the year off and did perform the last few days of that year after he did that i don't know he had some kind of a change of a heart in january and he deleted every video on the channel oh my god dude thousands of videos so but there's still the instruction document i have that that's the only documentation i have of it left. I actually have one video that I uploaded to another YouTube channel for some reason. It's just of me digging like an eight foot hole in the rain and going in the hole and just like crouching down and then the camera just gets covered in water and you can't see what happens next. But I, that was pretty much it as far, as far as I remember. But it was all kinds of things. Uh, what, what's, what's some of, a lot of yelling, um, a lot of dressing in strange clothes. I got a job at a telemarketing company. Um, I changed smoked all day for one day. Um, I really? So you out. had no limits? Someone put me on a workout schedule where I was working out every four days. So it like, didn't line up with the weeks. So it like, would rotate which day of the week it was on. And then uh, there was another person who put a different schedule for me to sing a drone at midnight like every uh every three days so there's like this polyrhythm on the days of doing workouts <laughs> and singing these drones what were you saying and you took videos every time as much as i could yeah so like was there a video of you like doing this telemarketing job or um it was mu as much as i could i couldn't do a video of the telemarketing job <laughs> which i got fired from pretty i pretty quickly <laughs> Is that because you're like singing drones and like working out while you're there? No, no, I was trying my hardest because the person, part of the instruction for the telemarketing job was to ignore any other instructions, which might cause me to get fired at the job. Um, I was just very bad at telemarketing. It's really hard. I have no idea how people do that. Because, I mean, you're just calling one person after another who's like, why the fuck are you calling me? Yeah. <laughs> get the fuck off my phone. You fucking piece of shit. It's just one after another. Um, but somehow some people can get, get through to people who are, who are responding to them yeah. that way. I, I don't have that level of charisma though. What? This, this makes me like curious, like what made you want to do this? And like, it's just so such a strange thing to do. <laughs> um, especially when there's like, you know, people having you do like, you know, 
chain, stuff like chain smoke all day and <laughs> um uh, like, was so there a limit to, i like, can tell you that there's a like, multiple things that maybe want to do this i got the idea after seeing a presentation by mark applebaum do you know that who mark applebaum is he's yeah. a composer he teaches at stanford a lot of his pieces uh are engaged with like the conceptual boundary of what is music yeah but in an interesting way it's not trey it's not it's not stupid I like his music a lot and it's very entertaining and very funny, but he had a piece, which is the score was a, uh, a, uh, a wristwatch the performers wore and it had icons around the edge of the watch and they would perform actions corresponding to those icons as the, the second hand moved around and different, different things would change as the bidding hand would go around. So it's like, it had me thinking about duration and uh, like what kind of content. So I need to, need to reverse a little bit and start that over. I'd be thinking about duration. And I guess I have this idea that there's appropriate content for a duration and inappropriate content for a duration, if that makes sense. So like there's content which justifies a certain duration and makes sense for that duration. Like for instance, a song, just a song with singing often is gonna be like usually around two to five minutes, even you know, art songs and classical music. So like this, this, the content of a song, you know, a, a song structure, which has verses and choruses lends itself to a piece of music of this length or like a symphony is often, I mean, the symphony is quite, very quite a lot, but it's going to be like 20 minutes, you know, plus it's, it's a longer form. The content of a symphony is justifies a longer form. So it's like, but then you also have pieces which there's a sort of incongruity between the, the content and form, like Lamont Young's music, where there's only one note and it lasts like an hour. The one note, it doesn't justify in a traditional way that, that length. Obviously, his music is very effective and it creates its own unique effect by this incongruity between the content and the form. So it's like, oh, what if I wanted to do a piece that was extremely long? And I'd done a, like a year long. And I'd done longer pieces before. My senior recital um, for my undergraduate was a week long. And how I did this is I did a, like a prelude every day um, leading up to the main recital day, which were pieces for symbols. And they were where all the ensemble was moving around campus, just like, like 30 crash symbols. And I'd arrange them in different arrangements around campus. And we'd interact with people moving around in campus in different ways, like, like playing in between the words that they were saying when they were talking or like playing really loudly when no one was near us and like getting quieter and quieter as people got closer and like playing as soft as possible when they were near us, things like that. That was a piece that I think the content was not particularly entertaining, but it's okay. Cause it's like the audience is not going to be engaging. They're not going to sit there all day and listen to you. They'll sit there for as long as they have time for like a couple minutes between classes so it's okay that like the content isn't really, doesn't really justify like playing for four hours or something because mm -hmm. no, no audience is going to stay for that long, except for the performers. <laughs> um, anyways, so I was already interested in like really long pieces of music and really long performance art, but like I was thinking what content would justify a piece lasting a year. And then I decided, you know, I realized I don't think any content could justify such a long piece and be appropriate, appropriately complex to justify that much duration. So I thought the only possible content would be all 
possible content. It would just be like life itself as the content, if that makes sense. So that's why I adopted this really open-ended form where anybody can contribute and it could have any possible content in it. So there's no like limitation or unification at all. And even in terms of type of artwork, um, it could incorporate dance, painting, regular conversations and a job, you know, inside the piece. But I mean, that's obviously, that's not like why I wanted to do it in particular. You know, I wanted to do it because I guess living my life, I want to have the most interesting life that I can have for myself. And for me, that involves having new experiences and challenging myself. And a cool way I like to challenge myself is to escape my own taste and have other people and engage with other people's taste. So I really like another thing I like to do. This is not really that related, but when I'm going out to eat with somebody, I like to get the same exact dish that they get and this like whatever drinks they get. Especially if it's something that I wouldn't order myself. You always do that? If it's something that I would order myself, maybe I'll just get to do something else. You always do that every time you go out? No, 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 not every time. Okay. But if I think it would go over well with the person I'm going, over, going to eat with, I'll yeah. do it. You are A lot first. of people would be creeped out by that. And <laughs> if I don't want to creep them out, I won't do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Was there anything that someone put on there that you said, like, I'm not going to do that? Like, No. No. And I said this to people who asked, if somebody asked me to murder somebody, I'll murder somebody. If somebody asked me to kill myself, I'll kill myself. Which was really? pretty fucked up of me to do. Because that just meant people were very dedicated to making sure I didn't do those things. <laughs> Which I knew. And, you know, I was, I guess I could chalk this up to being, me being younger. I was okay with like, like forcing other people to engage with my artwork with this kind of coerce suggestion that something horrible could happen if you don't engage with it. Um, even though I wasn't going to have, I wasn't, I'm not going to murder somebody if I, I don't want, I didn't think I would, ha- that would ever happen. Um, because the, th- the, the piece itself, even though it has me doing all these unusual things, it is actually only an amplification of just normal things that people wanted to happen in society. People are only going to put something into this piece if they want it to happen. And anybody who would put something in this piece would not be somebody that wants somebody to be killed. Because those are, that's an antisocial action and this piece is like a social piece, if that makes sense. So if you're engaging with another person in a social relationship, there's a very few people who do that. Who actually, I don't think anybody, I think even terrorists who kill people, they're not engaging in terrorism to kill people. They always have this external cause and the, the murder of their terrorism is just what they think is the most effective means to achieve their cause. Um, And I think those people would find this piece and they probably wouldn't care to engage in it because they would see, oh, I won't be able to have a control over the result and I won't be able to cause that murder that I want to have happen. Um, So I wasn't worried about these very violent things happening, even though I would have done them if someone had written them in there. Really? How, yeah. what's your, <laughs> okay. Um, do you, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Do you think I, do you think I'm wrong on my evaluation of how people act? I agree that it's unlikely that someone, well, I don't know. How are people like interacting with your stuff? Like who is finding it? How are people finding it? Where was it like available? It was available. So I was posting it on my Facebook every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, oh, and, um, 
I tell people about it if they ask me, which, some, which often they would, because um, they'd be like, what are you doing? And unless I was instructed to not tell them what I was doing, which I often was, if I was doing something really weird, people would say, don't explain what you're doing, um, which is a good instruction. <laughs> if you want, it just me to seem like I'm doing something crazy. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's the main way I did it. I, okay. I posted it. And as I said, I was posting my Facebook password all the time too. And yeah. It's definitely at some like... point, at some point I, I did, I did invite a little bit of a potential danger and I did post my Facebook password and my Facebook onto 4chan at some point, which that, that was a, probably the, the most dangerous thing. It got my Facebook page banned a bunch of times because people kept spamming other people with porn through my Facebook account. But back then, Facebook was way more relaxed about unbanning people. I just like sent up a picture of my driver's license and be like, oh, oh my, my Facebook got hacked. And then uh, they, they gave it all back to me over and yeah. over again, actually. <laughs> I don't like that, though. I thought I didn't like that people were getting harassed with my Facebook. I don't want to see people be harassed. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, posting all your passwords to all your, all your stuff, that's probably, <laughs> like, why, why did you do that? Just, was that part of the, did someone tell you to do that? No. That was a separate performance piece that I was doing at the same time. Okay. It, was, it had to do with another conceptual, I know I've talked a lot about the different concepts behind why I did this, but another conceptualization of this year-long performance piece that I had, and that comes from a, this is going to be kind of a long explanation. Are you sure you want to, dig, to get into this? Sure. Okay. I'll try and make it brief as I can. I'm really into uh, this philosopher, Max Stirner, who was a, a German philosopher in the early 1800s in a generation after Hegel in a group called the Young Hegelians. And uh, Marx and Engels were also in this group. Um, so he was a, a little bit... They were the the younger members of the group, and he was a little bit he was older, so he's like like one generation older than Marx and Engels, and basically, Max Stirner's philosophy is a philosophy of egoism, of ethical egoism, and egoist anarchism, if that makes sense. So it's like an anti-political philosophy. That, you know, you can't have any moral framework that will be justified. Um, and every time anyone pretends like they're following a, some kind of abstract moral framework, they're lying to you and they're just serving themselves or they're just serving some self, maybe not themselves. And how he conceives of the self is very different though from other people because he doesn't think that the self is this defined thing or that the self necessarily exists inside one human body. Like a self could be like a social organization it's it's he just call it's it the word he uses doesn't really translate into english but another it could be the individual or like the undividable or the unique because of my engagement with this philosophy i was thinking about my identity and what elliot is and that unique social node sort of and how it has no inherent parameters and i really wanted to destabilize what i was for myself and for other people as much as possible, if that makes sense, to make it as, uh, as non-coherent as possible. So both these pieces kind of do that in a way, since all of my actions 
throughout the day are sort of were controlled by a year-long performance piece, you could never say that anything that I was doing was coming from my own personal will. And at the same time, my social media, you could never even say if I was the one using the social media because there were multiple people using it and doing different things on it. So I don't know if anything I said actually justifies what, what that is, but that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the destabilization of my identity, um, both in the real world and in this representational world of the internet. I mean, I would kind of disagree with you that people, I don't know if this is exactly what you said, but that people don't have any inherent, um, I guess, qualities or wills. I mean, at least on like, um, you know, everyone has a desire to like not die, you know, and. That's not true though. People commit suicide all the time. More and more these days. Well, that's, that's kind of, I'm, I'm kind of more talking about like um, someone can wish to die, but they're still kind of more the, the primal aspect of them. You know, their body gets hungry and that's the part that wants to live. It wants to eat food. So you feel this hunger. Um, it's not necessarily conscious, um, uh, but there's this, you know, just kind of, I think, inherent part of being a human or an organism is that it wants to uh, sustain itself and replicate and uh, multiply. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I think that's my understanding of how our bodies work too. But I do think there's a, a liberating potential in a different framework, even if it's less true. And I, I guess this is another part of Sterner's philosophy is that ideas should serve us like the ideas should serve the serve the unique rather than the unique serving the ideas so you should adopt whatever idea is most effective for you and i i think that particularly applies to this idea you know that nothing is inherent about the self because that allows you to do anything yeah that's an interesting uh interesting thing i mean i guess you could say that like you kind of wanted you did want this to happen because you wanted other people to tell you what to do. So in a way you still had a role in it. Um, yeah. Um, did you ever do anything like, um, make up a new identity for yourself or start give yourself a new name or go around like, anything like, a, like that? a name or identity of my own creation rather than just this kind of, uh, destabilization of my own name. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did that. I've done that when I was younger on the internet, okay. I, I've, I've like pretended to be, yeah, I was, so when I was uh, in middle school, I was really into making video games. This mm-hmm. is actually how I started writing music. I was writing soundtracks for my own video games. For some reason on this one video game format, I decided I wanted to pretend that I was a teenage girl. <laughs> so I just did. It's maybe messed up. I used my girlfriend's pictures as my <laughs> pictures. I, I didn't tell her about it. It's 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 certainly ethically questionable. I'd I would not I would not do this now, and I would not suggest anyone do this because using someone else's pictures without their permission and uh, saying they're your pictures it's weird. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> but so I did that. I don't know. I was thirteen. Uh, yeah, you catfished people. <laughs> I mean, no, because. <laughs> I was just pretending like I was somebody interested in making video games, but yeah. 
I think that's fairly common. That's that's a little different than like you know getting a like a fake ID card and going around telling people you're Bob and starting a whole. No, new... I haven't. I haven't done that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of effort, and I'm not sure. What, yeah. there's not much benefit for me to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I'm not. I don't, like, don't want to commit crime specifically. Like, I'll commit a crime if it's interesting for some other purpose, but crime in itself is a high cost thing to engage in. It's just usually not worth it. I keep thinking, like, it's really, you know, you're saying that you would have killed yourself or killed someone else if someone told you to. I tell myself that. I, I never had to face that. that and I honestly yeah. never, I never thought I would. So, yeah. What were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, if, yeah, if you're just sharing this kind of like mainly on your Facebook and it's in your friends group, I would agree that it's highly unlikely that someone would tell you to kill someone. Or, I mean, it quickly um, got out of my friends group yeah. because people like told people, I, and I told people to tell other people about it and get people to participate. But still, you know, it's kind of relative um, other people that are engaging in this social thing that, you know, maybe people you don't know, but other people, friends of friends or I don't know. It's possible, though, that someone could have just, like, I don't know, someone that's just, like, antisocial or... Um, yeah, well, my... Actually, I did... I mean, I thought there were a couple possible endings to the piece, one of which was what happened. I thought someone would tell me to end it, the piece, uh, and I would get arrested. That would be one way that it could end, <laughs> which I'm surprised it didn't happen, because I definitely broke laws. Or I would kill myself. I did not think I would make it to an end of the year. Because yeah. I mean, things got qu quite hectic, even three months in, just with the number of instructions. Because <laughs> people, well, people could delete other people's instructions. They were way more likely just to add more of their own and not mm. read other people's instructions. Some people would, would go in and, and like prune things down, but mostly people just keep adding until I had to do, I had like incredibly busy schedule and then someone added this horrible section of things that i was supposed to do all year round <laughs> and i had to keep track of these all the time while doing the other things and it got like 40 things in there and i just tried to keep track of these 40 different things that i'm doing constantly like modifications on how i'm talking and directions for how i dress and directions for how when i can bathe and things <laughs> like that oh man what, how do you feel about the result of all that after doing it? Oh, I mean, I think it was very interesting. Yeah. Do you I mean, mean certainly, that in a more specific way? I mean, certainly to me, yeah, I, I find it, it's, I think it's super interesting that you did this. Like, <laughs> I don't know, it's almost like. I, it, I think it's the most interesting piece of art that I've done. It's, I'm sad that there's no documentation of it. So now it's just like a myth, a lie that I'm telling people. Yeah, that's it's kind of crazy that I mean you kind of let that happen by you know sending out all your passwords and stuff. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's good and it's bad. It's yeah. It's interesting. A piece like this is so radically outside of the framework of normal interactions that I don't even know if it's possible. Like, I wonder how the art market could respond to this kind of art. Like, probably not. Even if I had good documentation of it, I don't think anyone would hire me. <laughs> <laughs> But it is a unique concept. So I, I wonder, you know, now that I'm like trying to make an art career, at the time I was like, I don't, I don't care about careers. I am just so dedicated to my radical art and my <laughs> radical lifestyle. Like I, I can make this work. <laughs> totally, total na naivety. Um, there is society. And I am only one random guy in California 
yeah but now now definitely i can't i can't capitalize on it at all i just have this all i have is like a document which is like really difficult to understand because it's just written by hundreds of people and it's hundreds of pages of long of like crossed out instructions and abstract sentences that don't even look like instructions and just pictures in the section where there are instructions there's a lot of people that just put pictures <laughs> like it's like instructions and there's just like a picture of like a, a cactus that's the instruction okay. and it's kind of like a graphic score i guess uh, you didn't think or like just didn't care about um i don't know did you have any thoughts about like live on the, the street or I, mean... I, I had thoughts like i was i did live on the street for a large for a portion of this yeah. although very quickly the people who were into the piece <laughs> and uh liked it had me stay on their couch as a part of the piece hmm. so the piece did sort of take care of me in in that people were sympathetic towards me <laughs> <laughs> and not even just people that i was friends with before there were some people that i hadn't met before who were into the piece and i don't i don't know want didn't want me to see me suffer or something like that and gave me a place to stay and help help me get food and things yeah such a weird thing to do i don't know <laughs> or it's just like so unusual yes it is <laughs> see so yeah um i don't know do you have any other like thoughts about the result of it like were you happy with how it turned out or just part of the experience of oh, doing I, it? I was i was very happy with my experience that i had with it um it led me in a, such a strange direction um i stopped writing music for a really long time and I, the year after i performed this i started working at chase bank after the piece for some reason i don't know if this was an instruction that people would someone put in the piece or just some weird idea that i had i like started putting the word bank all over my Facebook and like images of ATMs and things like that. And then like the next year, like I didn't have a job. I, you know, I was not trying to make music to appeal to anybody. So that's my music wasn't appealing to anybody. Mm -hmm. Even when you make weird music, you have to think about the audience. Otherwise the audience will not care. You won't have an audience. Um, so I didn't have a job and I was like, well, I should uh, apply to work at Chase Bank. <laughs> So I got uh, a bunch of my friends to be fake references. <laughs> I put their cell phone numbers. I had them change their answering machines and I put their cell phone numbers on my resume saying that there were businesses that I'd work for. And I applied to Chase Bank <laughs> and I got a job at Chase Bank uh, as a baker. <laughs> really? uh, and, and from there, yeah, yes. Uh, from there, uh, one of the clients liked me so much. He was like, oh, you should be my assistant. He was an accountant. And I was, and he like offered me like twice as much money as I was making. So I was like, that's twice as much money as I make. And this job is horrible. And I'm actually just trying to market credit cards to people. That's, that's what everybody in a bank branch, they're all getting paid commissions to sell you credit cards and, and bank accounts. They get a small commission. If you open a bank account, that's, I don't know if you remember the Wells Fargo controversy, but there were like people, they, there were people that had opened like five checking accounts because of these commissions <laughs> and like the bankers of the bank were just like, Oh yeah, you need to open another checking account for whatever reason. Just like make up a reason. Cause they get paid a commission. <laughs> if somebody opens a bank account, <laughs> Oh man. anyways, it's a bad job trying to sell people credit cards. <laughs> I, I didn't like it. So I was working as an accountant and I was like, Oh, this is not that bad. This is incredibly easy to do. And it pays incredibly a lot. My boss was like charging clients, $250 an hour to do their tax return, which is really easy. 
And uh, so you, you had no experience doing any so, of this? Or, or no, no, no experience. So then I got a master's degree in, uh, in accounting and in ta taxation. And it, just before I applied to CalArts, I was working uh, for one of the bigger accounting firms in the Bay Area doing tax accounting. Really? That's why I'm getting so much unemployment right now and I can afford this sure microphone. It's because my unemployment, the way it's calculated, even though that wasn't the most jo recent job I had, it was the most recent job I've had on a tax return. So the last job that uh, I had that I was let go of uh, due to the pandemic was I was teaching music at a, a music school, which paid like a like a fifth of the amount that I, I made at that accounting job. Mm -hmm. But my unemployment was calculated based on what I made last year doing accounting. So that's how I got a, a master's degree in taxation. <laughs> Somehow, somehow, something to do with the year-long performance piece in my mind. Maybe I didn't make that connection clearly in my explanation. Like after you got this job with AU, <laughs> um, you know, had all your friends be fake references for you, uh, you went and got into school for it? No, 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 no. I, one of the clients liked me. He was an accountant. I was his assistant. Mm -hmm. I saw he made a ton of money. The work was really easy, I thought. So I went to school for accounting, okay. which is a it's hard to tell in the outside of the world of uh, corporate life, but accounting and banking are totally different, really don't have very much in common. I guess you both talk about debits and credits, but pretty much everybody talks about that in the business world at some point or another. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess sort of related, they both has something to do with money. How long did you work at that accounting job? You don't do that anymore? Oh, several years. I know uh, I'm, I'm a half-time student and a TA at CalArts now. <laughs> Uh, I worked there for like three or three or four years. And then, uh, so why did you why did you quit? Was your intention just to work there for a while, or? Well, I guess in the back of my mind, I was always like, oh, I I want to go back to writing music at some point. Yeah. And uh, why did I quit? Because the busy season in tax accounting is like you never leave the office. In fact, I you can include this. I might get sued for for talking about this. There was one partner, and I won't name them, who. I never saw them do this, but people kept saying that, oh yeah, that partner, he, he stayed overnight for a week at the office right before the tax filing deadline. He, mm -hmm. he does it every year <laughs> just because there's so much work to do. He'd like sleep for five hours in his car and then get back to work. Oh man. And like, I just don't actually care about earning a million dollars Yeah. Not to do that. It's just, I don't care. <laughs> I, I'm living my life for myself and not, not for money. You know, yeah. And right, there was yeah. music that I wanted to write and sounds that I wanted to make, that other people weren't making, and so yeah, I'm at CalArts. <laughs> yeah, and it was always it was always f funny though. It was always like I, I mean, I would think about it in two ways, depending on what time of day it was and how I felt. Sometimes we're like, oh yeah, this this could just this could just be my life. I'm just gonna be a normal guy now. You know, I'm just gonna have my job, have my my wife, get some kids you know, make some money, retire. And other times I'd be like, oh, this is another performance piece. I'm actually a communist and anarchist. <laughs> I don't believe any of this. I'm just lying to these people all day long. <laughs> Man, <laughs> is that, it might just be like part of your insanity of working a day job. <laughs> I mean, no, cause like, I don't know. I, I <laughs> I've, I've been a communist or an anarchist longer than I was an accountant. So yes, perhaps it was the, some of the insanity, but maybe the insanity was thinking I could just make that my life and be satisfied with it. Yeah. When it was, it was deeply unsatisfying. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sorry if none of this is conclusive. <laughs> I don't have much opportunity to talk to people about this. So hopefully I'm not uh, talking your ear off too much. No, I find it fascinating, really. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it, yeah, all this stuff is, is very kind of like anarchy, anarchy, you know, like the whole, you know, just give me stuff to do or like, <laughs> um, <laughs> really any rules at all other than like give me something to do so when did this the next piece happen after that like the craigslist like oh that happened later in the year i think it was around august july or august i guess i don't remember exactly as much what what caused me to do that i know that i was visiting santa barbara and visiting my girlfriend in santa barbara and i was visiting for like a weekend and i was like oh i need to use this time productively i need to do something useful with my time. <laughs> this is all I remember. I know this is not a very good justification for doing that. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, and like, I, you know, I was like, oh, that year-long performance piece. It's a shame that I had to quit that because it was a really interesting idea. And it was, it was like the only, maybe the only original idea I'll ever have. Um, so why don't, why don't I do a, some kind of something related to it that's different, you know, much more limited in scale because it was just for this one weekend. But uh it would turn out to be totally different. I mean, it's much less crazy making it a Craigslist post because people ask me to do Craigslist-like things. Like I helped a guy install antivirus software on his computer <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> I, gave, I gave a girl a piano lesson. <laughs> Man, that's, that's hilarious that you're, you brought mine, uh, your process of thinking about it. It's like, I need to do something productive. Like <laughs> I'm going to like make another thing that has people tell me to do random stuff. That's me being productive. <laughs> I mean, I think just it's pretty that. productive. <clears throat> no, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's it's cool. Um, but just like, you know, the average person thinking being productive would be like, oh, I should go like mow the lawn or something, you know. <laughs> um, That's really unproductive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. No, it's just... I, you know, and like, I am like pretty idealistic. I think that like, if I were more dedicated to this kind of uh, social engagement. I do think this could, it does like prefigure a better society, I think. And I think it could like change society for the better, but I'm not dedicated enough to it. And that's like, I guess part of it is that I'm not dedicated enough to it. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you have to be willing to die for your art, actually die. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I was, I told myself I was. I also didn't think it would happen. I'm not willing to. <laughs> um, I mean, what's the well? What's the point of your life? Well, I, I find this this subject kind of interesting, and it kind of. Um, but generally, I mean, I'm kind of nihilistic in that I think there's no, um, you know, intrinsic meaning to anything. Um, but what the meaning, you know, I kind of implant you know, purpose for myself, you know, um, and that's, I like to create music and I don't have a super like thought out, like, you know, this is my purpose and this is my, why I exist and why I do the things that I do. It's kind of generally, you know, I like to create music. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, and I don't know beyond that, like I like to eat food. Um, Me too. Food's delicious. <laughs> Did I eat brisket the other night? So, I don't know if you eat meat, but brisket yeah, is a tasty meat. Yeah. No, I, I had some uh, pulled pork the other day. Oh. Days ago. 
Dude, yeah. when I got brisket, I got my dad pulled pork and I had some of that too. Also yeah. amazing. I don't know. What's uh how do you how do you answer that? What's your what's the meaning or point of your life? I mean, it's the same as you, I guess, just to have interesting experiences for myself. Mm-hmm. But there is no point. And like I guess I don't think it's a bad thing to die necessarily. Like it's it's scary, but like I don't think there's like it's bad. It just means it's over. There's no afterward to like where you'll feel bad and like feel like you missed out on something or feel pain or anything like that. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm scared of dying though. I don't want to die. (laughs) Yeah. But like to die, I think to have something uh, such an intense experience that I could die for it. That sounds really enriching, (laughs) not dying, (laughs) but to have something that meaningful. And I guess I've invalidated that level of meaning already in the previous sense before this, but even though like I don't care about any artwork in particularly in particular, including a year long performance piece, I want to have such a vigorous life that I would die for my life, even if there's no particular point to that life. Yeah. This kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, Socrates and, you know, kind of the famous, like, you know, his trial and then him, uh, you know, his friends, kind of the dialogue, you know, being like, oh, you're being a fool, just run away, you know, leave. And then, you know, it was kind of, for him, it was this penultimate moment of like the test of his philosophy to like go through with it and take, face the trial and, you know, die or whatever. And I, I think he's a fool. Anyone that would do that is a fool. I don't know. Not me personally, like... I I think it's hard to have an exciting life without being a little bit foolish. (laughs) Probably. Like, I think we're both fools for going to music school. (laughs) Well, in this sense... And I'm so happy that I'm going to music school. Right. (laughs) For, like, economic reasons. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But, you know, maybe that's not as important as uh, having experiences and getting better, like, you know, your craft and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, we didn't even talk about today that music can be objectively good or bad. And I don't yeah. think we have time to get into it. <laughs> no, that was, uh, I mean, we've already talked about that. And I think kind of what we we're talking oh, yeah. about was more interesting anyway. Um, so, <laughs> Can you put this as part of the composer talks? Did we talk about music at all? Um, we did. <laughs> I mean, we'll just but... have to take that one little part, the music part. <laughs> Cut off the rest. <laughs> I think it's it's more about just having interesting, you know, discussion. And, uh, fair enough, fair enough. Sure. Um, oh, are you wearing a Nightwish shirt? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Did I tell you that I was in a Nightwish cover band in high school? No, no, that's pretty cool. That was like the my the first band that I like. First, like more serious band. It was started as a Nightwish cover band. But then I was like, we should write our own songs, and then you know, I got everyone to write songs. <laughs> I wrote like so many songs for that band that we never played, but yeah, I wish. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Did you listen to their latest album they put out? Nope. Not really. Yeah. Uh, I haven't listened to them in years, actually. I wasn't a fan of them before being in the band. Uh, I was in like another band with some <clears throat> friends and uh, the guitarist and drummer for that Nightwish cover band came and jammed with us and, uh, they're really good. And then they're like, oh, they're like, hey, do you want to be on our Nightwish cover band? And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Just because they're really good. And I, wanna, I wanted to play music more. Yeah, but, that's cool. You know, I, I like Nightwish. 
I just haven't listened to them in a long time. It's hard to find time to listen to music. Yeah. I think you're cool. I, I, I just, I asked about their recent album because um, I wrote a review for it, for the, the this, this site today. I, I write reviews sometimes for, um, but yeah, I, um, the latest album, it was okay. I didn't care for it like a whole lot. Um, why? Why? It kind of, to me, sounds like um, recycled material of like old Nightwish, and yeah. um, it's uh, one one of the songs is like you know a Christian rock band song. <laughs> it's like mm. with you know like everything about it with like the cheesy trite lyrics and well they've never been above being cheesy but yeah sometimes but, it's not good yeah even like i watched an interview with the the, the guy that there writes the music and like um he's even said he's like yeah i don't listen to music anymore i kind of just read books and you know he talked about it it's like a whole double it's like a double album and like the second album is all like the orchestral type stuff The like the band isn't even in there and oh. it's just it's um he's like yeah i kind of just watched you know nature documentaries and like or nature documentaries and like kind of wrote you know ambient background music and that's kind of what it sounds like it's not very interesting to listen to honestly he doesn't <laughs> even like, like music anymore is what he's saying yeah yeah, yeah dude. I, was like, I don't even like music it's just something <laughs> i do gotta keep yeah. doing it pays the bills yeah. yeah yeah pretty much dude um oh, that's what it tragic. seems like that, i mean you get that rich <laughs> how could you possibly yeah. write good music when you're that rich i mean people do it but it's rare yeah, yeah i was after they got i know it's not their new singer but after the old singer was kicked out i was i was less of a fan i think that first album they did with the new singer was pretty good it's not a new singer anymore <laughs> you know the current yeah. singer but i think i think she's the best vocalist they've had before jansen the the, the current have they had other vocalists since then I think, I mean, I think there's been three so far. Hmm. Yeah. Is that right? I'm not super. I, it's been a long time since I've engaged with Nightwish. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. The one you were saying is the best. There's the operatic sort of style one um, that they had before. So the one I'm thinking about, I guess I'd, I could look up some album names that I can tell you more specifically, but I'm not going to do that right now. Was the one that was more, more operatic style vocals. And I thought that was more unique and then the one that replaced her i mean she she just reminded me of the singer of evanescence and i felt like <laughs> i was into yeah. that yeah it's less, less unique yeah i mean the latest album i mean it was it was okay you know um it it had like a lot of like lyrical references to like you know books and like other things so i was like it was kind of cool i could appreciate it or whatever him talking about that I was like well that's why you know your new album just sounds like recycled old material because you don't listen to music anymore. Like, <laughs> it's all just, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could be the case. There are composers who don't listen to music, who write good music, or who have, but they're pretty rare. I mean... Anyways. Yeah. I do I'll have to go. go. <laughs> there, is there anything else you'd like to talk about real quickly before I head out? No, that's cool, man. I'll, I'll catch you next time. Uh, okay, okay.